Hello, everybody. Welcome back to our Bible study series on the book of Romans. If you have a Bible handy, please turn to Romans chapter 11. Now, we are on the final chapter of what you might call the Israel phase, the Israel chapters in Romans. Chapters 9 through 11 explain and establish the new dynamic in God's church. Now, to be sure, God has always had a church since the fall. After the fall in Eden, God gave the Proto-Evangelium to Adam and Eve, in which the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. That's the moment in which the church was truly born, especially because God killed a couple of animals and skinned them to clothe Adam and Eve. There was a sacrifice. So you have uh, absolution and, well, faith in the coming Messiah as far back as Genesis chapter 3. And this continues. But there's a new dynamic. Because the moment we have Abraham and the promises given to Abraham that the Messiah who was promised, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, would come through his loins, national Israel was established around that time. It was inaugurated at the Exodus with God basically showing the entirety of the world, hey, everybody, these are my people. They are the ones through whom I am safeguarding the line of Abraham according to the promise that I made. The Messiah would come from Abraham. So Israel was for a while basically just the church. It was the only group on earth that believed in the true God. But it wasn't by blood. There were plenty of Gentiles that went along with the Israelites through the Exodus. They skipped town as soon as they saw that this God who was raining fire down from heaven and causing it to be dark and doing the Passover and everything. Okay, that's the true God. And we're going to go ahead and believe in him. And then there's other Gentiles as well. Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Zarephath. Uh, the various people who would come to Elijah for healing. Even King Nebuchadnezzar truly does, at some point, put his faith in the real God. Israel, God's chosen people, was never defined by blood. It was never defined in a racial sense. Now that said, though, there is still a racial factor here, an ethnic factor, because there were clearly clans, groups, the 12 tribes, people getting together as a giant family. I mean, at the end of the day, a race of people really is one gigantic family with a common ancestor. And Jews hail all the way back from Judah, the patriarch of that particular tribe. So St. Paul here, in Romans chapters 9 through 11, is explaining to everybody in this Roman congregation here, how yes, the Gentiles are now part of Israel by faith. Now, to be certain, it's always been the case that Gentiles could be part of God's church, even in Old Testament times. And they were called proselytes, or God-fearers, in the first century before Christ came on the scene. But there was a barrier to entry. Is the covenant of circumcision. There was the Mosaic law. There was a huge learning curve, and it was very, very difficult to say you can now be a part of 
Israel, given how this law worked. So there was definitely a temptation for uh, Jewish groups and Hebrew groups out there in Judea to see this as a matter of some sort of salvation by ethnicity, salvation by race, by belonging to a special group here. And the Gentiles, well, it's not helpful that the Romans were currently running and occupying Judea. They were seen as an enemy. In fact, just about every Gentile at that point was seen as an enemy. So St. Paul has to explain through these three chapters here that, wait, okay, the law has been fulfilled. The Gentiles out there who previously had all these hurdles you'd have to jump through, who couldn't really, really be a part of God's people, especially if they were, say, Amalekites. Amalek was just barred from entry to Israel. I mean, there is that political thing going on, but that's not the case anymore. It's not about the law. You aren't saved by the law, nor are you saved by your blood. It is through faith in Christ that you are justified. And now he also has to explain how it is that all these different Hebrew groups out there in Judea are not automatically saved by their observance of Torah or their heritage from Abraham. He has to walk something of a tightrope because, well, people are mad. It seems to me that people are very upset at the idea that their heritage, their history, their constant works, always doing these uh, sacrifices and trips and basically drudgery, slavery to this law doesn't count at all towards their salvation. And now they have to learn that their family that they know and have loved for all their life their family isn't saved because they're rejecting Jesus. So we turn to Romans chapter 11, starting in the first verse, to start to hear, well, how that rejection happens and what that means. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So we return to the first verse here. St. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And remember, he has this habit of in-beforeing or preempting various responses, questions, and objections that the Hebrew members of the Roman congregation might bring up. So has God rejected his people? And he says, by no means. After all, St. Paul is a Jew. 
Now the word Jew has various definitions during that time. It could be used as somebody from Judea, somebody descended from the tribe of Judah, etc. and so forth. But he says here, I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, has God really rejected uh, all these Jews here, all these Hebrews? No, I'm saved. I'm an Israelite, right? He's saying, hey, God has not made it impossible for a Jew to go to heaven. God has not said that only Gentiles can be saved. After all, if that were the case, St. Paul would not be a believer. So he says in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, this is not to say that the dispensationalists are correct. Israel is not a race. Israel is God's church. Now, St. Paul will occasionally play with both definitions of Old Testament Israel, the nation, the people descended from Jacob, who was renamed Israel, and Israel as the church. But when Elijah appeals against national Israel, he's speaking about, well, the northern tribes, those who had killed the prophets and smashed God's altars, etc., and so forth. God has not rejected all of those people because there was a remnant who worshipped him. He is rejecting those who do not believe. After all, what happened to the northern tribes? They went into exile, the Assyrian exile. They were scattered to the four winds. They hated God. He rejected them. But that remnant that still believed, that still worshipped the true God, was still a part of Israel and was preserved. And St. Paul says, so too at the present time there is a remnant or a small remainder chosen by grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. In verse 6, he says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. There is no Hebrew ever who has been saved in any other way than a Gentile would be saved. St. Paul is establishing this very, very, very Clearly, this denies any sort of dual covenant theology. This denies dispensationalism's belief that the law is going to make this major rip-roaring comeback with a third temple and God's just going to accept all these new sacrifices for sins and everything. No, that's just not going to happen. Period. End of story. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God is going to somehow say that Oh, it's okay when these people are justified by their works? No, I don't think so. Don't kid yourself. If the remnant of people who were not cut off from Israel are saved by grace, elected by God's unmerited favor, 
then by all means, that is always the case. You're not going to be saved by your works. This is a major, huge theme here that we've been seeing in the book of Romans, and St. Paul is saying it is the exact same for Hebrews. What then, he says in verse 7, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And here we have to have all nuance in the world, because somebody might claim that St. Paul just contradicted himself. If you look at verse 6 as though it is supporting Calvinism, then yes, verses 5, 6, and 7 would seem to be quite contradictory. A remnant chosen by grace, which means it's separate from works, but then these elect who were chosen by God's grace obtained something. So you're chosen and you didn't do anything, but then you grasped something. You didn't do anything for your salvation, but then you obtained your salvation. And here, of course, the Roman Catholic friends that we have would say, aha, so if you are part of God's elect, then we must define elect according to the ecclesia that God has established, and they are the ones who then, by faith plus works, obtained what Israel, old Israel, failed to obtain. Meanwhile, Calvinists and other um, harder views of election are going to say, no, God zapped these people to bring them salvation, and that is how they obtained it. By joyfully accepting, which they didn't, never had the option of not accepting it, but it's the same thing, they joyfully accepted that which they had to accept because God zapped them and converted them entirely because of God's sovereignty, you see. But both of these kind of ways of looking at these three verses are ignoring the wider context here. St. Paul is talking about the place of the Hebrew remnant in the church, in God's chosen people, Israel. He's not bringing up the doctrines of grace according to Reformed theology, and he's not talking about ecclesiology in the sense of the church being a vehicle for salvation the way a Roman Catholic thinker might assume that he is talking about. This is really a remnant of people was chosen to be a remnant, and they are the ones who did obtain salvation. Now, not by their works, but by accepting that which God offered. You do not obtain salvation the way you obtain a paycheck. It is by faith alone, of course. But it is also the case that this was a people, a certain people that was elected. Note the parallel-ish wording here between that verse and Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Verse 31, but Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. What are they pursuing? What are they obtaining here? Well, it's obtaining righteousness by faith. In other words, salvation, being considered righteous by God and therefore having the promise of eternal life. St. Paul is saying there is a remnant of Israel that God chose to remain in his 
Israel in his church. I know it sounds like I'm speaking in circles here. This is a confusing topic when we touch on soteriology in light of the context that St. Paul is giving. Remember here he says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You do not generate faith on your own account. But then he says, the elect, this remnant, obtained it. What did they obtain? Well, interpreting scripture with scripture, the same thing that the Gentiles did. They attained righteousness, that is, by faith. So you have an element here, a tension between God inspiring faith in your heart, opening up the eyes of your soul, and then you actively believing as well choosing to not resist what God has brought to the fore of your mind and your soul, choosing to go along with what God has revealed to you. As much as Lutherans can talk about the bondage of the will, a lot of people misunderstand it. They have this idea that Luther was a hard 100% determinist. Well, even if that was the case, we have the formula of Concord that gives a much more nuanced view of the freedom or bondage of the will. It's actually kind of memorable how the formula of Concord says, look, mankind isn't a block. We're not a puppet. We're worse than that because we do actively choose evil in accordance with our evil corrupted nature. We have a will with enough freedom to choose what is in accordance with its nature, so we choose to do sinful, evil things. It is only when we are regenerated that we have the ability to choose, however weakly we can choose, you know, very weak in our new awakened state, to choose the good. Okay, that is here. Romans 10, 17 says it is faith coming from the word of Christ, from hearing the word, hearing the gospel that produces faith in us. But then, as we are awakened and regenerate by this kind of faith, then we obtain that righteousness by faith. It's all there. Yes, the formula of Concord, I believe it is very, very accurate here. But if we take away the immediate context of St. Paul talking about the remnant of the Hebrews, then we're going to start extrapolating all sorts of things that he's not saying. When God chose this remnant of Hebrews here, when he chose them, did that mean that he zapped them and they had no choice but to believe? No. If that were the case, then they would not obtain anything. They just would be pigeonholed into it. They would be the wooden dowel here, forced into the circular slot, and God says, there, I have put you where you must be. The use of the koine word, epetuken, is an active verb. It is not a receiving this thing that you're seeking here. It is actively going up and taking it. Taking that which God has just given you. Actively seeking that which you have. Yes, this is attention. But there's a lot of things like that in Holy Scriptures. When we look at eschatology, we have the already but not yet of the kingdom of God. And it works the same way here. There is a tension because it is a relationship. God opens the eyes of your soul to see the truth of the gospel. You are then to use your now freed will to decide 
Are you going to accept what God has given you and seek Christ, or are you going to reject it? This is why I deny the whole irresistible grace aspect of the TULIP acronym. Now, somebody might opine, hey, you're only rejecting it because you're not reading the rest of the passage you read to us. Verses 8 through 10, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Ah, don't you understand, Mr. Pastor here, Mr. Lutheran, that we are advocating for even double predestination. God chose some, but rejected the others. And not just rejected, but hardened them so that they would not believe. Good objection. It's wise of you to bring that up. It's very clever. But we need to examine the language here. In verse 7 it said, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now they obtained the righteousness by faith. I'm going to interpret scripture with scripture. I'm going to say that's what they obtained because the same verbiage is used for the Gentiles in Romans 9 verse 30. They obtained the righteousness by faith. How? Well, they had to have faith. How did they get faith? Hearing the word concerning Christ in verse 17 of Romans chapter 10. The rest were hardened. But when were they hardened? Does the text say that God hardened them from before the creation of the world? No, it seems to be that they were hardened after the elect, this remnant of the Hebrews that was chosen, believed. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is an active thing that God does to those who rejected Jesus Christ. This is an act of judgment on those who rejected Jesus when he showed up. This isn't saying double predestination is true. There are other verses that might support that, but that's not here. Now, to be frank, this is not supporting the IFB style of free will soteriology either. After all, if human free will was just totally magically free, then we wouldn't have passages like this saying that somebody could be hardened. Now, St. Paul had brought up Pharaoh earlier, and Pharaoh first chose freely to reject what Moses was saying several times, and then God started hardening him. The people that St. Paul says were hardened were hardened after the message of Christ had been preached, and they rejected it. Now, again, does this mean that God is saying, None of the Hebrews are saved. They are all going to hell. Blah, 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 blah. No. After all, again, St. Paul said, listen, I'm an Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm saved. If God had completely and totally rejected everybody of Hebrew extraction with whom he had formerly made these covenants, then it wouldn't be the case that St. Paul would be a believer. But those who rejected the gospel, who callously cheered on as Christ was crucified, 
Yes, they were hardened. Well, not 100% hardened. This is an interesting thing that St. Paul should bring up himself, by the way. After all, St. Paul was a persecutor of the church, somebody that the IFB or Fundamentalist Baptists would say was reprobate, could never, ever, ever be saved. But St. Paul is saved. And we're going to get into that later on as we study further into chapter 11, that even people with hardened hearts can have softened hearts and then be saved. After all, that seems to be what happened with St. Paul. And he's holding out hope for that. But we'll get more into that next week regarding the branches and a potentially new regrafting and everything that St. Paul hopes for. But until then, if you are thoroughly confused, that is okay. Let's go ahead and summarize this before we call it a day. God allowed for a remnant. He chose a remnant of Jewish people in Judea and scattered elsewhere, wherever Jews were, to be believers in Jesus Christ, to open the eyes of their soul through the preaching of Christ's word. Those people then obtained righteousness by faith the same way the Gentiles did. This doesn't support uh, Calvinist soteriology necessarily because St. Paul is not extrapolating that out to every single believer, but he is saying that Jews are saved the same way Gentiles are saved, through faith in Christ. And we have the interaction between God's monergistic enlightening of somebody's soul here, bringing them to regeneration, and the soul's response to freely embrace that which is revealed to them. Those who rejected what was revealed to them were hardened broken off from the true Israel of the church of God and not likely to come back to the church of God. Now that said, St. Paul is going to hold out hope probably because he at some point was a rejecter of Christ who had a very hard heart. You remember, he was a murderer, but he is now a saint. And that's going to be something that I believe is going to color the future verses in Romans 11. But we will get to that next week. And boy, howdy, I'm excited to get some, hopefully some emails contesting what they're hearing. <laughs> amen and amen.